Welcome to Brand Story, Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week, we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Today on Brand Story, Inc., we welcome Elizabeth Merritt, the Vice President of Strategic Foresight and Founding Director for the Center for the Future of Museums, which is part of the American Alliance of Museums. Elizabeth, so excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Jay, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about my two favorite topics, the future and museums. Nice. Well, it's quite um, a time to talk about them, right? So let's it, start. It with... is indeed. <laughs> we'll start with the state of the museum industry. Um, and as your as the Center for the Future of Museums titles implies, uh, it's a, it's an interesting time to look at the future. I'd like to really try to break it down into three buckets. Let's first start with what does the immediate future hold the next 90 days from a museum executive level from the people you're talking to? What does it look like right now? Well, actually, it's ironic that you're asking me that because futurists generally look out 10 years or more in advance (laughs) (laughs) because that's enough time for trends to play out on a large scale. So in some ways, I'm the worst person to look at a three-month horizon. (laughs) Normally, if you ever asked me that, I'd say, well, it's going to look more or less like today with minor variations. Except, of course, (laughs) now we aren't in normal times. We're living in the wake of a massively disruptive event. But Obviously, I'm very concerned with figuring that out, as is everyone else. Um, So I'm using my futurist skills with a shorter term time lens now. But let me be clear from the beginning. I am looking at this as a futurist. I'm not an expert in epidemiology or economics or any of the other things we're having to figure out right now. Um, What I do, which is what futurists do, is I look for credible information, including a lot of different forecasts and opinion. And, And then I start imagining what kind of future Uh, we could end up in based on those projections. And in this case, I'm just trying to apply it on a much shorter time frame. Um, Luckily, there are so many great people out there writing thoughtful explanations of what they think might happen right now, Um, from from the general progression of the coronavirus uh, to effects on employment and the economy. Um, uh, Of course, when it comes to museums, you don't have to be an expert to see that in the short term, things look really, really dire. Because as far as we know, all of the museums in the U.S. are closed right now. At Mm -hmm. least I've been unable to find one that's still open. And since this is a podcast, I'm giving a shout out. If you're out there, museum that's still open, please write to me and let me know. (laughs) And that's very concerning because we know at AAM that even in the best of times, about a third of museums are running operating deficits. And and they're dipping, dipping into their financial reserves to cover the difference. So if already you take that as an indication of stress, a third of museums normally in a good year are operating sort of on the the really the financial edge with very little margin um, in a massive stress like that, it really makes you wonder how how long can they last and how many aren't going to be able to last. A number of museum directors have said to me privately that they can only go a few more months without some infusion of cash um, before they're unable to pay their bills. And... You mentioned a third or at the or you know in normal proceed normal times were kind of on the brink. What about the the other two thirds? What is the solvency of like the the very healthy or you know probably more that middle of the bell curve of museum? What type of reserves or endowments and and how much runway do if you look at the if kind of the the middle part of the pack here what 
Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have a good breakdown. This is one of these things in retrospect I wish I, I had asked and knew. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any data on like wh- um, what's the bell curve of distribution of how many months of operating reserve different museums have in the bank. Because it would be nice to say, you know, mm-hmm. 80% of museums had four months in the bank. We don't know. Um, we know more about endowments, but that doesn't tell you as much as you would think it does. So first of all, most people may not realize the vast majority of museums in the US are small museums. These are little tiny things, Mm -hmm. just like the vast museum of businesses in the US are small businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And most small museums don't really effectively have an endowment in the way that you'd think about it, you know, any significant amount of money in the bank. So when you get to, you know, medium-sized museums, you know, your local city museum or the local historical society, maybe they have, um, let's say, a million dollars in endowment in the bank if they're lucky. When you get to the really big museums, of course, like a large art museum, so they, may, they might be actually getting 20% of their yearly operating income from a 5% draw on the endowment. Mm-hmm. But still, most museums just like most universities a big chunk of the endowment is tied up it's it's got conditions on it uh so it's an endowment that's directed towards uh supporting a particular position right so the named curator of art Mm -hmm. right supported by this endowment or it's an endowment um, that's directed at uh producing exhibitions every year or doing publications those are legal restrictions Museums couldn't access the principle of that fund without going to the attorney general of the state and petitioning to have uh, those restrictions removed, assuming the donor was no longer alive. And you know, even <laughs> in the best of times, that would be an incredibly elaborate procedure that would take years if you could even get the courts to hear it now. Uh, and even the, the money that is in, unrestricted in some, day, in, in some cases may be invested in ways where it's not liquid, right? You can't access it. Yeah. So then it becomes a question of, you know, do you have funds where you could get a loan with the promise that in the long term you could pay it back? So long story short, um, most museums don't have robust uh, cash, liquid cash reserves that they can fall back on at a time like this, which is one reason they're all hurting. Well, it's interesting, right? You you mentioned it um right before we came on, it's just the, it's the fact of there are very few business sectors that aren't affected in this triage mode right now, right? Right. And um, rethinking things. But if I'm hearing you, based on conversations you're having, just the, the financial operational triage of even, you know, quote unquote, well-endowed normal time, uh, mid-size, mid to upper-size uh, museums are, are probably spending a fair amount of time on what you just said. Cause part of that petitioning and trying to reallocation and getting permission to take money to use um, because there's rainy day funds and then there's monsoons and we're in whatever that is times, you know, a multiple. Well, I don't know if any of them are trying to get legal restrictions removed yet. Um, And that probably would be a much longer runway before they they would even feel it's dire enough. That's sort of a last ditch before we die move, I think. Okay. Um, because they respect those restrictions. Mm-hmm. They entered into them in good faith. Um, what What is happening, um, so for example, uh, some foundations um, who have given grants to museums are saying, well, okay, we know we gave you this grant to produce these programs. Forget about it. Go ahead and use it for operating income. <laughs> you can't mm-hmm. put mm-hmm. the programs on anyway because right. you're closed. So some grantors are being very generous about removing restrictions on on grant funds. So that's one thing. Okay. 
Another thing is that some museum directors are going to their boards of trustees and asking permission to use board-restricted endowment, so that's voluntarily restricted endowment, um, to keep, for example, to keep paying staff so they don't have to do layoffs yet. Um, so there are short-term things people are beginning to do. I think it, it will be another six months to a year before we saw anything more dire. Well, as you alluded to, a year in normal times is, you know, probably the early stage of, as a futurist is kind of the horizon you like to start with on the low end. So let's go there. Let's maybe think a little bit positively. Um, how do you see business models beginning to change? Ah. Uh. Well, first of all, I'm going to push you. I know I asked for 12 months, but now I'm going to up that and ask for 16 months. Great. Got it. Granted. <laughs> and, permission granted. Right. Okay. <laughs> and the reason I say 16 months is because I think that's the soonest we see a plausible future in which we have an effective vaccine mm -hmm. that has been proved effective and safe and mm -hmm. is widely distributed. And as a consequence, people feel safe resuming something resembling normal life. And that 16 months um, is, I what I'm seeing is the, the sort of mainstream best case scenario from people who create vaccines. And of course, because part of that is actually production and, and deployment, it, it could be longer, it could be two years. It depends on how good a job we can do. At once we know we have an effective vaccine, it actually creating enough doses and distributing them and getting people to take them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, but let's say 16 months, best case, there's a vaccine, people say, yay, I'm not gonna get coronavirus, I wanna go out in the world. That's when the museums that have survived, which hopefully is the majority of them, will begin to regroup and rebuild. So how are their build business models gonna change? Um, which is a really good question. <laughs> mm -hmm. In an interesting bit of timing, um, the, the Alliance's latest forecasting report, which I write once a year, this year happens to be about the future of financial sustainability. Mm -hmm. So it's called Trends Watch, the Future of Financial Sustainability, and it's available as a PDF download on the Alliance, the Museum of the American Alliance of Museums website. Um, we'll give you a link that you can include in the show notes if you like. Yeah. Yes, it's aam.us.org. Right. Uh, and we will uh, we'll link to that. Great. So I, I finished writing this edition of Trends Watch just before COVID-19 started trending in the world. And we released it on March 24th. We actually delayed publication for a few weeks after it was available because everything was about COVID and we didn't want to push it out uh, as, a, as if the message was, hey, this is the most important thing right now. No, mm -hmm. the most important thing was getting thing, resources to museums about what's going on and how can you respond. However, it is very relevant right now um, because museums already have to start thinking about what are the long-term implications for their financial plans. So understand it was written at a time when things were financially normal for museums or at least as normal as they ever are and i spent several years working on this so reading everything about how museums are making their money where does it come from what are their business models and my conclusion is it's a miracle that museums ever make the finances work at all mm. it's like the story I don't, this is apocryphal i'm a biologist so i believe this is apocryphal but there's a story that a scientist once looked at a, or an engineer looked at a honeybee and said this shouldn't be able to fly <laughs> why is it flying this is aerodynamically impossible so you know, overtly you look at a museum's finances and, and you say how does this work how do they not go broke because what museums do is they patch together little bits of funding each mm -hmm. of them from a different stakeholder with a different expectation so it's not like you know selling 
widgets, right? Somebody right. wants a widget, they buy a widget. And if somebody's creating a cheaper widget, they're going to buy the widget from them. No. The whole match between motivations and money in museums is really complicated. You have a visitor buying a ticket who wants a couple of hours of entertainment. Um, and some of those visitors might be people who are doing a really cold calculation about where's the cheapest place I can take my kids for a few hours. And am I going to buy a membership because it's cheaper to buy a membership if I'm going to go four times this year than mine. And some of those are, are people who are really devoted to the museum and want to support it. So, yeah, they're buying a ticket, but there's also a very sort of charitable, philanthropic feeling behind that. They want to support a good thing. Uh, you have funders who have a very specific outcome they want in the world. And they're happy if the museum can do it, but they're not inherently supporting the museum. So, like, they're giving you grants for programs that will boost the graduation risk of at-risk teams, right? Mm -hmm. And they're happy if the museum can do that for them. Um, the local government may want the museum to succeed because they want tourist attractions and they want tourists to come in and spend money. And museums, in fact, are very effective at this. We have numbers on it. But the things that museums do to serve tourists may not be the same things that their local community needs or wants. So you have this really complex mix of who's giving you money and why and what they want for it. So that becomes a very delicate dance. And at some point, those different forces are tugging against each other. So one thing that's important to realize is this income mix varies a lot from museum to museum. And when the American Alliance of Museums says museum, we mean everything from zoos and botanic gardens and children's museums and science centers, as well as art museums and history museums. and as separate disciplines within the sector, each of those types of museums has a different typical kind of business plan. So some kinds of museums like science centers or children's museums might rely really heavily on earned income from admissions. Mm -hmm. So they may be hurting really badly right now because they're depending on the gate every month to even pay their staff. It's not like they can fall back on a big endowment. Now, some large art museums, as I referenced before, might get 20% or more of their support from the spending rate on their endowment. Um, and, and, but the, you know, the market has been going up and down lately. And last right. I looked, I, I'm afraid to look every day. Last <laughs> I looked, it was looking pretty good, but a couple of weeks ago, it was really bad. And right. When the market tanks, endowments are worth less than they were before. So what it reminds me of really is, is the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I think that was a minor stress test. It didn't feel minor at the time. Right. But in retrospect, it was a minor stress test of all of those business models um, and all of the sources of museum funding, earned income, charitable contributions, government funding investments. All of them took a significant hit. And I think the current financial crisis is having a similar effect, but it's 10 times worse. Yes, yeah, I think... Elizabeth, I can jump in. It's interesting sure. because I th this is a place where you and I have talked about this. You know, when mm -hmm. I came and visited you and we had lunch on this topic, I think there's this museum. We believe there's this museum white space. And I don't want this to come across as um, self serving because Brand Story Inc. is out there. So, museum executives listening to this podcast, this needs to provide value for them. But it, it's pretty interesting in terms of. Um, the company I work for, Teamworks Media, we work with several museums, and one of uh, in our presentations, it, it's it's a little eerie now, um, and we probably wouldn't do it the same way. But we would walk in and say, and part of our exercise would say, imagine if your doors were closed for six months, right? Which is mm -hmm. which at the time was 
you know, an extreme example to try to just get people's mindsets to think differently. If you, uh-huh. you right? thought it was a theory, you thought it was a theoretical question. Yeah, it was exactly, exactly right. So imagine your your doors are locked for six months, and we talk about yet, you know, and I would I've done this presentation at AAM conferences and things like that, and I would say, look, what can you do beyond the brick and mortar? What is the white space? You are whatever the subject matter you have, and I would ask this, right? And I would I would say, do you think you're in the top five in the country on your subject matter? And most people would raise their hands, right? And even if they weren't, you know, I don't know how you would, would judge that. I'd say if you're not, it would beg why you're there, right? A little bit because your 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 confidence should be that you are good at what you're doing, right? And so to that end, there's this notion of how do you fill a niche in a way that you have this credibility as a museum that gives you this uh, position of authority on whatever that subject is. And you and I talked about this. We worked with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and created, they were, they were challenged to kind of connect with the Latino community, to get Latinos mm-hmm. to come to Cooperstown, New York. It was really remote, and but yet obviously huge. Uh, even the non-baseball fan can appreciate uh, that there are 16 million U.S. Latino baseball fans. It's a passionate sport for the Latino culture and community. And so we created a digital media company with the Baseball Hall of Fame that serviced those fans around the culture of baseball. And this is different from uh, social media, which many, most museums are doing, right? It's actually, mm-hmm. is there a way, and I remember talking to a woman, um, I think it was that she was the, one of the heads of marketing at the Boston Museum of Science. And I said, you know, it's a time for creative partnerships. There's people like the Boston Globe who are making budget cuts, this is before Corona, now it's even more, of like, how could Boston Museum of Science create content, right, that engages those interested in it and create partnerships that the Boston Globe would happily take content from the Boston Museum of Science, right? Or mm-hmm. insert insert subject matter city here, I'm not, you know, soloing out the Boston Museum of Science, it's just, and there was this excitement around it, like, wow, really, they would? I'm like, yeah, they would, if and you get branding in exchange, and as long as it's, you know, credible and all of the things that, that it would need to do to, to pass muster, I see this as an opportunity for museums to really develop new revenue streams, which I know is at the heart of what you're talking about. It's what the heart of what we've been trying to help museums do, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like to us, the canary in the coal mine of this. I'm not happy what's going on here but um, I'm curious as as I talk about that and what we've done for La Vida Baseball and some of the other museums and kind of help them kind of build this you know media presence that can then get sponsorship and donations to to quite candidly um, connect and engage millions of people around the globe on a subject matter or hundreds of thousands around a subject matter I'm curious I've been out there almost as a futurist in the business model talking about that because we haven't had a ton of people um, buy into that, but the ones that we have have become believers. I'm curious where you see this beyond brick and mortar. How does digital media, how does someone's content creation ability at a museum become or not become part of the base of future business models of museums? That's a really good question. and. One of the challenges is, perversely, that museums are so good at doing this that they've been pumping high-quality digital content out for free 
for the past 10 years, and they've even amplified that during the COVID crisis. Uh, so you have, you cannot reach the bottom of this well if you start putting the bucket down. Museums putting out curricula for students at yep. home. Um, people putting out videos, le videos and lectures for adults. People holding classes for how to learn to draw. Museums saying, you know, here's a tour of our virtual galleries. Whether it's educational or, or entertainment or just sort of silly stress relief, and there's a ton of that, which is wonderful, <laughs> and we need it now. But it's, for the most part, all free. And how do you train people to teach? How do you train people to pay for something they're used to getting for free? And how do you offer paid digital content if, if all of your colleagues are, are underbidding you with a price you can't beat because it's costing zero? It's really difficult. You know, one of the things that I talked about in TrendsWatch is this fundamental misperception in, in the nonprofit field. Um, I kid you not, this is gonna sound like a joke, but I'm serious, that a lot of people, even people who work in museums or serve on museum boards, think that nonprofit means museums aren't allowed to make money. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I could bang my head on my keyboard right now, <laughs> so you could record it, I would, but you know, it would mess up my computer. Um, so one of the fundamental parts of that report is, no, you're allowed to make money. You should make a lot of money because if you make a lot of money, you can do more and better good and you can pay good salaries and provide good, solid jobs. We have this poverty mentality in the U.S. that somehow nonprofits should scrape by on the least amount of money mm -hmm. possible, which is particularly crazy as we've shifted over time to nonprofits pay, playing fundamental, essential roles in society that that in many places in the world and in some cases used to be in the U.S. served by the government. So you have museums taking on these roles, but then not having an income stream attached to it. So I absolutely agree with you. It's clear that especially in a time like this, where we might face repeated physical closures, it's not like magically COVID's going to go away, we're going to reopen and everything's going to be back to normal. All of the best projections are we're going to see repeated rounds of spikes and closures and reopening until we get a good vaccine. It's really vital that museums figure out a way to attach income streams to digital content because that's what they can do right now. You know, other than saying to donors, please support us so we, we don't go broke while we're closed in terms of providing value, it's digital. But as you say, the, the reason I was so interested in talking to you when we met is there are very few examples of museums actually doing this. So seeing La Vida Baseball was a great um, proof of concept. You know, so mm -hmm. you can actually do this. Even in cases that I've shared with you, um, where museums have created incredible uh, digital channels like the Brain Scoop, which is at the yep. Field Museum with Emily Grassley, they haven't aggressively built a business model route attaching earned income to that. Um, they've gotten some really great grant funding uh, to deploy it at other museums. Um, right now, uh, they, they have a contract with um, a, a public broadcasting uh, station to, to do a, a special this coming summer, if that happens now. Um, but it wasn't an earned income model. And yet right now, with people trapped at home, I haven't seen the data. Maybe you know where to get where to find it. But I imagine that one of the um, few sectors that's doing well right now are, are uh, channels that charge for streaming media. I mean, I know I went and s signed up for CBS All Access, which I'd been holding out on because <laughs> you need some entertainment. Yeah, um, no, it's it's uh, like I'll give you so Disney, um, Disney's Disney Plus, which just came out. Their original projection was to get to 50 million subscribers by 2024. They hit it in March. 
right? So there's huge, but I I guess, so just um, to kind of take that, we'll use BrainScoop as an example. I think what I'm suggesting is that it is free. It continues to be free, but where (laughs) where we see the market going for museums is BrainScoop becomes intellectual property that becomes monetized. And the revenue stream comes from sponsorship in the same way that, um, I mean, we've done this with our work mm-hmm. with the Tennis Hall of Fame and others. And the, mm-hmm. um, there's kind of like three cracks at the, there's there's three bites at the apple, really, right? There's the, the marketing that you're doing for your museum by creating a brand, like a brain scoop or a tennis worthy, like which was inspiring tennis stories from the Tennis Hall of Fame that we did or La Vida, like you mentioned. There's that component. The second one is going to a donor and venture philanthropist and saying, hey, look, in the same way that you used to give money to underwrite a uh, an exhibit, right, or grant, mm-hmm. we can assure you we are going to reach X amount of millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people that are on this subject matter, right? Mm-hmm. So, the underwrite, underwrite it, if you will, become the mm-hmm. PBS for us to become our own content place. Then the third one is is brands uh, and sponsorship, right? And that mm-hmm. is, if you bring a million people around a subject matter, any subject matter together, the demographic data and the and the community nature of that. So for example, BrainScoop has tremendous value and people will pay for that. So like mm-hmm. BrainScoop, I see a future where BrainScoop is a TV series that's sponsored, but it, it requires a different mindset on behalf of, and, and I'm not, I know Charles Katzenmeyer and folks over there, they do in BrainScoop, they do a phenomenal job. That's an asset that, has a lot of potential to be monetized, I guess is where I'm going, you know? And so that's, that's, but that requires a different mindset, mindset from the executive leadership at museums to be thinking, hey, this is an asset that can be monetized as opposed to, um, you know, having people pay to access the information. And I think this is where um, my my director has a saying that that she deploys Riley sometimes, uh, which is never let a good disaster go <laughs> unexploited. <laughs> now we would rather this is not happening. If I could rewrite the present in the past right. so that we're not in the COVID right. pandemic and museums weren't in financial distress, I would do it in right. a heartbeat. But given that it's happening anyway, could anything good come out of this? I I suspect that one reason museums haven't done this more as you say, figuring out how to transfer the traditional kinds of support to digital channels are because it's not the way they've evolved. You know, they're used to the traditional practice of courting donors for exhibits. Um, They have the connections and mindset and procedures in place to do that. What does it take to transfer that to the idea of of the museum content as as media channel? Mm -hmm. To use your words, maybe it's going to be a disruption like this that makes it necessary what do you, and what do you you mentioned uh, several great examples so um uh, you said virtual galas and different things what are some of the things that you're starting to see in innovations that are emerging during this time that you're keeping your eye on as potential trends yes what are the things that i'm looking for every day in my news feeds um well okay so one of them um, as you mentioned is that some museums are replacing physical uh, events um, with with online events. So most a lot of museums get a very large percentage of their operating budget every year from a gala. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing some museums are being nimble enough to pivot to doing an online gala. So the Japanese American National Museum is doing an online gala, the Portland Art Museum. And some of these are really creative, um, like, you know, you're not here to eat the food, but if you want, we'll arrange for you to have a pickup <laughs> box dinner at the curb when you're ready to get it, okay? 
and and having you know online social events to go with it maybe an online auction where they'd normally be doing a a, a you know in real life face-to-face -face auction at the dinner we're also seeing some museums launch emergency fundraising campaigns, um, like the Tenement Museum, which is a wonderful museum in oh, New York City. It, yeah, yeah, but that's one of those museums that really depends on GATE for their finances. Mm -hmm. So they're in tremendous financial distress. They're launching a Save the Museum campaign. Mm. So these are all great things to do, absolutely the right thing to do. It's too early to know, for me to know at least, um, how well they're performing uh, compared to the museum's needs. So those are wonderful digital pivots I don't know how they're going to play out. What, what are um, what, what are some of the things that you may be looking at from other industries during this time that you see as relevant reinvention that may apply to museums? Yeah, I'm not sure, but it's a great question. Um, so, so far, all the lessons I'm taking away seem negative. <laughs> <laughs> so we can see which place-based businesses like restaurants, which right. have very low profit margins like museums, mm -hmm. are likely to go under. Right, <laughs> right. So, you know, they're saying this might be the death. I was joking to you, I think, before we started recording. I was saying if I hear um, if I hear the term existential threat more one more time, I'm going <laughs> to scream. But one of the thing, one of the industries I've heard that phrase of applied to um, restaurants, especially independent restaurants, as opposed to the big chains, which may be able to, you know, fall back, consolidate and redeploy. Uh, and then you're even seeing like, think, uh, this had never have occurred to me, but I was reading in the New York Times yesterday that major department stores are at risk because they've taken on too much debt. So they're saying, you know, it's existential threat to mm -hmm. major department stores. It might be the end of the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, now, museums, for the most well i don't some museums have taken on debt especially if they were at a point in a capital building campaign where they were they were borrowing in advance of having raised all the money they anticipated so there there might be some museums who are in a very precarious position because of that when i look for the positive examples I don't know what to take away because what's thriving under COVID? Zoom is booming mm -hmm. because people need a free and easy way to connect with each other, even right. if the secure, security sucks. Right. Um, mail order companies, okay, selling essential products that are doing really well. You know, people want to, especially since they don't want to go to a physical store right now. You know, So mail order companies can be doing great. And of course, you have digital giants like Google and Facebook yep. that are doing fine. But the core businesses of all of those sectors are so different from museums. I don't know what we can take away from it. So if you had thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it. No, I, you know, I think to your point, it's, it's just, we're all, I mean, our industry, uh, you know, we're in the content business and people would think, oh, wow, you must be thriving because, you know, all the numbers of Netflix and Disney and, yeah. you know, not necessarily every, all of those things were already produced. Like most media yeah. companies are not spending money, they're cost cutting. So they're rerunning content, not paying right. for new content. Right. So it's right, like, right. Um, and brands that want to connect with their audiences or most of them are saying, you know what, we're going to just sit on the sideline as opposed to kind of using the opportunity to connect and provide value, which is, which is disappointing. But you know, uh, being a, in the service industry on the content side, it's not booming on our end right now. That's yeah. that's for sure. But yeah. so one thing that I go to, um, did you have you happen to see the the National Cowboy and Western Museum on social media? Have, did you? Have, yes, yes, I have. <laughs> I mean, this yeah. to me for but those for our audience, for our audience, explain what you're referring to. Yeah. So the National Cowboy <laughs> and Western Museum, uh, I believe it's in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, they had. Uh, they closed and they decided to turn over their museum to their security guard and and 
I don't know how staged this was or how real it is. It's hard to tell. But what they did is they gave the security guard, Tim, right. his name's Tim, yes. the iPhone. And they were like, Tim the security guard. Tim the security guard. And he goes around and takes pictures. And, write, and these, there are these hilarious tweets of you know, him at a selfie station where he took yeah, a picture yeah. of the selfie station, but not himself. And just right. Kind of... Or he's saying, he's saying, I'm new to Twitter. I understand I'm supposed to use hashtags. So then he spells out hashtags. So I'm hashtagging this. <laughs> I, and I'm with you. I would love to know sometime before this is all over. I'm assuming it's an act, but it, either way, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Yeah, got, but they do, they do highlight the their exhibits, right? <laughs> yes, I mean, yes. and it's such a playful, it is the best example I have ever seen in the museum space of tone and voice. Right. And, and because what's happened, and, and here's the business part. When I, when I first saw it, there were about six or 7,000 Twitter followers. And last okay. I checked, uh-huh. uh, it was like 350,000 or something. And yeah. every tweet they put out, has thousands of engagement. Like there are brands that are household names that get 10 times less engagement than this National Cowboy and Western Museum. And it is just extraordinary what they do. But you know, it's one of those things, the devil's in the details. It's the tone and the voice and the nuance and the sophistication. So it's, it seems to me, I've actually reached out to the CMO there to see, mm-hmm. come on, this is stage, who's doing this? Because uh, I highly recommend it. It's become one of uh, one of my top joys, your point of like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I have no affiliation or care about the subject matter, but mm-hmm. you're drawn to Tim the security guard. Right, 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 right. Or um, the Shed Aquarium in um, Chicago, they put up this video, that, and apparently this was not, there have been follow-ups by other aquariums that are obviously staged, but apparently one of the problems with that zoos and aquaria are having uh, in the absence of visitors, is some of the animals get bored. <laughs> so they're, no, seriously, this is great. Like, we're, all the, we're all the funny people we, we <laughs> usually laugh at. They're not here. So they're actually have to, having to do extra um, social engagement and, and enrichment activities. So what they did is, uh, at the Shed Aquarium, they let the penguins out and let them wander around the aquarium, <laughs> and they took video. It was awesome, and every, I don't know the social media stats. I'm sure you could pull it, but it was amazing. It just went viral in the best way, so everybody was watching penguin videos, which, yeah. again, we all need right now. <laughs> and so you've, you've had lots of copycats. You know, you have other aquariums saying, let's let puppies into the aquarium. Let's let kittens into the aquarium, but I, I, that's fun, too, but I think what was especially fun about the aquarium, about the, um, the, the penguins is, as far as I can tell it was um very unstaged it was yes. like you know well they're bored let's let them out oh we might as well we might as well video it yeah and i think it's interesting the, the one thing i would say that um borrowing from other industries the thing that we're seeing that may apply here and and i, and I i'm hopeful but i'm biased because it, it, it helps our business in the long run and that is in the media in the media world you would think that the media executives at the major networks and companies like the NBC Universals and the Warner Medias and those conglomerates would be um, further along than they probably are in terms of appreciating the value of digital media they're still tied to television money first primarily um, and that has changed the top level executives I think just as you'd imagine like like you and I, we're at our laptops, we're consuming content while we're working, it's become indistinguishable as the days, right, kind of merge together. And hey, there's no, there's no live sports on television and they're seeing content engaging 
people digitally. And I know conversations at the top level there have kind of accelerated the importance of kind of engaging in, you know, at the end of the day, museums are building communities, right? And this notion of digital is just a tool to further enhance community. It's not to replace it. It's part of the community ecosystem. So I'm thinking there, there's probably conversations like you're just saying, many people saw that Penguin video. Many people have seen Tim, the security guard. By the way, it's at NC, N is a Nancy, C-W-H-M is the Twitter follow for the National Cowboy Museum, if you want to check that out. but Awesome, I will. Uh, you wrote about recently on your website about the museum lessons learned from the Spanish influenza a century ago. Mm, mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share with our audience what those were and how you see them applying today. Sure, sure. Actually, that essay was by my colleague Marjorie Schwartzer, who's a professor of museum studies at the University of California in San Francisco. So she's in the middle of it right now. Nice. Yeah, I learned a lot from her essay. One thing Marjorie noted was um, that Back in the 1918 flu epidemic, museums even then were battling their reputation as elite bastions and dusty (laughs) warehouses. And so they really wanted to show that they could provide direct services to a wide public. And so they, you know, they did things back then like, well, we'll turn our grand hall into a hospital. So they really were. We have a lot of documentation, archival documentation of museums being essential services during the pandemic. And we're seeing that in this pandemic as well. So you have like the Baltimore Museum of Industry converted its parking lot into a COVID testing station in partnership with, with health organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, you Oh, Shed Aquarium again. Penguins for lighthearted, this is more serious. They lent some of their high-tech lab equipment um, to the testing effort because they had some very specialized wow. uh, equipment that you don't normally have around a hospital and it would be hard to get. And so they said, here, use ours. You um, Oh, you have the it's not and it's not just directly about health either so one of the things we've been seeing is a terrible upswing in racism and violence directed at asians due to the ignorance of people calling it oh this is the chinese virus oh so let's beat up on chinese people oh Mm -hmm. gosh um so the portland chinatown museum um, stepped in to try and help educate people and raise awareness and combat racism we're going to see a tremendous outpouring of love for museums and here here's a signal that i use as um an indication that might be true. In China, when they eased distancing restrictions, so many people flooded to historic sites that they had to shut them down again. Hmm. And I think we may have to manage something similar when museums in the US reopen. And there are worse problems to have than so many people wanting to get in that you have to find <laughs> a way to, <laughs> let's do time tickets, people, not too many people in the museum at once. And I hope at the same time, that as museums realize how much they missed museums and how much they value museums as part of their lives, they'll also become concerned about how, how financially fragile museums are. And that might lead us as a nation to rethink our financial system, the business model for museums. By contrast, museums in Europe, which are generally funded by the governments, they're still taking damage during this crisis, which is global, but so far they've mostly avoided the mass layoffs we're seeing more and more often in US museums. Hmm. And that's because of the government support. I think, I, I spoke at the beginning of our interview about how museum business models are this strange mix of different motivations of who's willing to give you money for what reason? What's the value proposition? Well, personally, 
I believe the primary good that museums provide is they're an essential part of the civic infrastructure. Museums are like roads or schools or library. They're part of having a good country. They're, they're part of having civilization. <laughs> and that value proposition calls for more funding from local, state, and federal governments. I hope that post-COVID we'll see more support for that kind of funding. Hmm. Awesome. Going to flip it personally here in the home stretch for you because uh, you are a woman of very many interests and uh, being a futurist for the entire museum segment, um, I want you on my Trivial Pursuit team. So I'm curious, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what are your morning musts? What, what do you allow, what do you subscribe to from an email perspective? How do you stay up um, on things in your market in terms of how you consume content when you get up in the morning? Sure, sure. And actually, this is a particularly apt question for a futurist, because one of the fundamental activities of being a futurist is what we call scanning, which is just a fancy way of saying reading a phenomenal amount of news every day. <laughs> so really, I have a whole system set up to feed me news. Um, and it's a combination of looking for credible sources and seeing what they have to say and knowing I'm interested in certain topics. And then casting in that to say, see who's saying anything interesting about it. Maybe somebody obscure I've never heard of. So what I've done is I've set up an aggregator. I happen to use the platform Feedly. Mm -hmm. And it's programmed to bring in stories from my favorite sources. And then I pair that with a Google News Feed that I've trained over time to trawl for content that's likely to be of interest to me. You know, the more I mm -hmm. tell it more of this, less of that, the more accurate it gets. So that way I'm reading sources that I trust and finding new interesting material, even if it's from somebody I've never heard of. Now on Feedly, I will say a couple of the favorite sources I've plugged in are a site called Futurity, hmm. F-U-T-U-R-I-T-Y, as you might expect. I think I first looked at it because it has the word future in the title, big surprise. But actually what it does is it collects research news from top universities. And it's really nice to have a, a, a collection of credible news from researchers, especially mm -hmm. today. And another site I love that I want to give a shout out to is Planetizen, P-L-A-N-E-T-I-Z-E-N, -E -E uh, which itself is collected by people who read all sorts of sources and then uh, summarize them and, and post little summaries and links to their site. And they focus on planning and design. So it's everything from the man-made man environment, you know, mm -hmm. built objects, architecture, and the natural world. So they find phenomenal stories and they do a really good job of summarizing them. Love that. All right, now we're going to get even more personal and go by to your nightstand and see uh, what's on the, the the secret stack of books that you have there. What are you reading for pleasure or fun right now? Um, and what's in the queue? What's on the stack? Okay. You actually warned me that you were going to do this. So I literally <laughs> went to my nightstand and I grabbed the books on top. And the two books on top are, are kind of eerie parallels. And they're both phenomenally thick. It's kind of intimidating. They each, I'd say, oh, two, two and a half inches thick. One is fiction, one is nonfiction. So the nonfiction book is one that Jared Diamond wrote in, um, oh gosh, I think he wrote it maybe in 2000, I'm going to peak, 2005, 2015. Yeah, I think it was as long ago as 2005. Yeah. And what he did is, it's called Collapse. <laughs> Sounds uplifting. 
Yeah, it takes a historical look at civilizations that went extinct in the past, but in part because they were poor stewards of their natural resources. So, you know, how can humans mess up the environment in a way that's so bad that it makes them make <laughs> that civilization go extinct? So it looked at Easter Island, mm-hmm. and in the U.S. it looked at the Anasazi, it looked at a Viking colony in Greenland, and then in the today in the modern world it looks at rwanda and the tension between haiti and the dominican republic and it it also looks at the current environmental threats facing china and australia so it's yes it's about disasters (laughs) but at least it's not about pandemic disease so that's a nice relief from reading the news and the other one that's really an eerie parallel is a fiction book by kim stanley robinson called new york 2140 okay so it it takes yeah it takes place in the year 2140 and it, it envisions what life is like in New York City um, when the sea level ha- has risen so far that it half submerges most of the buildings. Okay, this is a completely real scenario, too. <laughs> if New York doesn't figure this out, I don't know, through you know seawalls or pumps or whatever, it's going to be underwater. So this is about a disaster, too, a very plausible disaster. Um, but it really, in some ways, it's very hopeful because it's about human resilience. So it's about... Mm. It doesn't really have that much of a plot so far, though I still have 500 pages to go, so it could go all sorts of ways from here. But it's really about the fact that even in a radically changed environment after this disaster, people are people. They have friendships. They live good lives. They figure out how to do their work. So I think it's a nice reminder that however bad this gets, we're going to find some way of of living our good lives. You turned that really well to a positive light, Elizabeth, because I was about to ask our listeners to send in submissions for some uplifting literature for you. But... Well, I do have one uplifting. I knew that you were going to say that was too dark. So I also picked I also picked the slimmest book on my nightstand, which I'm reading just for fun. It's called Metropolitan Stories, and it's a novel by Christine Coulson, and she based it on the fact that she worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for over 25 years. Nice. So this is fiction, and she has some really wicked spot-on caricatures of museum staff and donors, <laughs> and some really lovingly uh, crafted imaginings about the secret life of museum objects when they, when they become alive uh, after everyone leaves at night. Well, this is why I do this. This is like I have Goodreads, but who needs it when I have Elizabeth Merritt? So I've got three three new books to, to look at and some I'm going to I've never used Feedly. So thank you. I, this is selfish. I get to learn. But seriously, Elizabeth, uh, we take you we thank you for taking so much time. Elizabeth Merritt from the Center for the Future of Museums, which is part of the American Alliance of Museums. You can find out all of her trends, watch her reports that we referenced at aam.us.org it's, it's pretty well marked there's a ton of rich content on there and thank you for sharing um, a little bit of the future with us thank you Jay it was my pleasure thanks for listening to Brand Story Inc we'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.